Hi, this is Joe Van Wee, your host of All Better. I had a few announcements. If you're interested in subscriber content, which we're about to launch, this would be step workshops, cognitive behavioral therapy tools, and mindfulness practices that are approachable and can be very useful in reducing anxiety, rumination, and depression. Please send us a, a message on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. And if you like the episodes that you've been hearing very much, please stop by Apple Podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and a small review. This helps us stay relevant in the field of content and helping people and their families with substance use disorder. Thank you. Hello, and thanks for listening to another episode of All Better. I am your host, Joe Van Wee. Today's guest is State Representative Eddie Day Pashinsky of the 121st District, Pennsylvania. Eddie has established himself as a passionate and consensus building voice in the General Assembly, working for the things our neighbors need, like property tax relief, jobs that pay a living wage, appropriate funding public education, reducing the cost of higher education, access to affordable quality health care, and more. In 2006, he was first elected to represent the 121st Legislative District, which consists of Wilkesbury City, Fairview Township, Wilkesbury Township, Ashley Borough, and Hanover Township, and Laurel Run. Pashinsky serves as a Democratic Chairman of the House Agriculture and Rural Affairs Committee, a position he has held since 2017. He is currently serving as a board member of the Center for Rural PA and the PA Hardwoods Development Council, as well as chair of both the Grandparents Raising Grandchildren and Legislative Sportsmen Caucuses. Pashinsky also has previously served on the insurance, state, government, human services, aging, gaming, and commerce committees. Eddie is a graduate of Wilkes University with a Bachelor of Science degree in music education and has a master's. He uses his 38 years of experience as a former music teacher and choir director at the Greater Anacoke Area School District to push back against irresponsible and drastic state education funding cuts that adversely affect local property taxes and threaten the quality of public education. A tireless fighter for healthcare reform, Pashinsky led a task force, regional expert, that developed recommendations to improve the healthcare system. He has introduced numerous bills to increase access to medical care reduce costs to consumers, and improve outcomes. Pashinsky has organized a package of legislation that has helped provide resources for grandparents raising grandchildren. That's what we're here to talk about today. As well as helped to pass the historic 2019 PA Farm Bill, which included his language supporting PA Preferreds Homegrown by Heroes program, promoting Pennsylvania veterans who became farmers and producers. Following the devastating floods of 2011, Pashinsky spearheaded a legislative package to help homeowners and small businesses recover and protect local jobs. He's been named Legislator of the Year by several organizations representing the best interests of Luzerne County and people of Pennsylvania. Prior to joining the General Assembly, Eddie held several union positions with the Greater Nanticoke Area Education Association, serving as chief spokesman, vice president, and eventually president. In addition to local offices, he has also served as PACE director and region chairman for PSEA on the state level. A staunch supporter of community involvement, is held leadership roles with the Luzerne County Coordinating Council, 
Zern County Legislative Committee, United Way of Wyoming Valley, and serves as the Executive Director of the Advocacy Fund for Grandparents Raising Grandchildren, a popular local musician, entertainment manager, and promoter. Eddie is widowed and has four children and seven grandchildren. Let's meet Eddie. Thanks again. We're here with State Representative Eddie Day Pashinsky. Um, to give a little context to our relationship before we get started, uh, I worked for Eddie on his second campaign. Uh, I had friends that did his first campaign, and we were partners at that time. And it was a lovely, honorable campaign. It was the first campaign I felt noble. It's <laughs> like, all right, it's a good, you got a good guy. But uh, kidding aside, we, we maintained a relationship. That was uh, around 2009, 10. And I've been friends with Eddie for the next 12 years uh, through thick and thin. And the last time I was part of a race, when I was still doing politics, um, I was hiding some drinking. And Eddie, you, you were actually one of my first amends that I called of a client because I, I, I felt like a, I let you down to some degree. Uh, and unreachable and the, the grace and kindness she showed me and understanding it and recovery. I definitely wanted to express before we get into it today. I wanted to thank you for that. Um, and coming on here today. So thanks for coming. Well, listen, it's my pleasure to be here with you and I want to congratulate you. Uh, not only myself, but all those that were supporting me throughout that campaign, you know, recognize the gift that you had and, you were very innovative, very intellectual, very creative, and you helped me uh, get through that campaign. And, you know, uh, life, life is wonderful, but every day there's a challenge and life is tough. And uh, I'm never one to, you know, point the finger or anything like that. And especially in this job that I have as state rep, it is truly an honor to serve. And, um, you know, I, I'm humbled by the the vote that I receive from my constituents. And that's a contract between me and them. They trust me to, to try to uh, work out things for their benefit and, and support them and, and represent them. So you played a major role in continuing, you know, uh, so many years. This is my 16th year. I, I can't believe it is. And wow. it's, it's, it's gone like, uh, you know, in seconds. So first of all, thank you very much. And I'm so proud of you, and I'm so happy that you're doing this because, again, uh, you're sharing your intellect, you're sharing your creativity, and I'm very proud of you. Oh, happy, happy to be here. Thank you. I'll have you on every week now. <laughs> if we could. <laughs> you see that creativity, folks? Yeah. You could be a comedian, too. Well, I a lot of people, um, you know, this is a recovery show, but there's great value in understanding the distinction between what we always see as federal politics just dominate our media cycle and then state what, what gets done in, in the state level towards recovery and treatment and the word that is just, just buzzing in our ears for the last almost a decade, the opioid crisis. And the sexy headlines are the Sacklers kind of, um, being sued and now being held, put to task and held. And we'll see how that totally finishes out. But mm -hmm. it looks like a sense of justice. The litigation referred to is the litigation of Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family. This litigation accused the company and family members of aggressively marketing Oxycontin while downplaying its addiction and overdose risks. The company family members have denied the allegations a federal judge overturned a roughly $4.5 billion settlement that legally shielded the members of the Sackler family who stand accused of helping fuel the U.S. opioid epidemic. That was in December of 2021. U.S. District Judge Colleen McMahon said in a written opinion in December, the New York bankruptcy court that approved the settlement did not have the authority to grant the Sacklers the legal protection from future opioid litigation. As an update of February 2022, members of the Sackler family who own Purdue Pharma, maker of OxyContin, are willing to kick in more money, 
up to $6 billion in total to settle thousands of lawsuits over the toll of opioids. And the company tries to work out a deal with state attorneys generals who torpedoed an earlier settlement. The offer was detailed in a report filed on Friday of last week in U.S. Bankruptcy Court by a federal mediator who asked the court to let her have it until the end of the month to broker a new settlement. Under the latest proposal, the Sacklers would contribute between $5.5 and $6 billion, an increase from the $4.3 billion they had agreed to in the original bankruptcy settlement. The last of the money would not be paid out for 18 years. The exact amount would depend on how much the family would make from selling its international drug companies. The additional money would have to be used to combat the crisis that has been linked to more than a half a million deaths in the U.S. over the past two decades. Part of it would be to be controlled by eight states joined by the District of Columbia that objected to the original settlement last year when other states agreed. We'll be following this more in other episodes. It doesn't look like blaming addicts. The old stigmas just don't survive because it touches all of us. Rich, poor, it doesn't matter. It, this this is a cultural crisis. And how a lot of us are responding to reality is finding an addiction. which You know, that could be unpacked in its own way. But you came on to something that I really wanted to take this show to kind of talk about and, and, and bring attention to. It's grandparents raising grandkids. And it, it's a complex idea. It's a, it sounds simple at first, but it needed a lot of complex things to happen. And you were the guy to shepherd this. So I want to be able to talk about that and how much work that took, that someone is, you saw a place to help, a very specific place. And what it took to get that help actualized, it, it took passing laws, influence, lobbying, bipartisan relationships to be working together. And I think that's, that is democracy, slow, bad, or indifferent. Here's a response that is now effectively running. That's right. So what would you, how would you first broadly describe, and then let's just go back and start. How did this, how did this all begin? What is grandparents raising grandkids? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hello, my name is Joe Van Wee. I'm the host of All Better. But I'm also the CEO of Fellowship House. And at Fellowship House, we believe long-term recovery requires a personality change as well as a clinical intervention. These ideas can take several months to achieve. Our philosophy is to provide a safe, therapeutic, and exceedingly active environment for patients to achieve these personality changes and find joy in the fellowship of recovery, which will allow for long-term sobriety. We believe that recovery extends beyond treatment and peer-to-peer communities into real life. In Fellowship House, we provide a design for living that focuses on education and service. We have strong relationships with the 12 universities and vocational schools in the area and ensure that our fellows pursue their personal goals while entering sobriety. We also stress independence and responsibility, making sure each individual is financially solid and self, and helping to make their community a better place. As a treatment center, Fellowship House offers both residential and outpatient treatment services to individuals and families affected by addiction and alcoholism. We're a DDAP licensed provider of general outpatient, intensive outpatient, and partial hospitalization programming, as well as a level of care assessments. If you want to find out more information about Fellowship House, please visit fellowshiphouses.com. Well, I'll tell you what that is, and then I'll tell you how it came about. Grandparents raising grandchildren. To my surprise, it's like 90,000 grandparents are raising, you know, 80-some thousand grandkids or 100,000 grandkids. I haven't checked the statistics yeah. now. And I thought those numbers were outrageous. 
And I don't think I was any different than the vast majority of people out there who really did not understand addiction. And I think you'll agree that from 2016, 17 till today, a lot of things have changed relative to treatment, relative just to the image, et cetera. Most people looked at a, a someone that was addicted and they felt that they were a loser. And then the realization came out that many of these addicted folks became that way from prescription drugs, from Oxycontin, something like 70% of those that were addicted uh, because of the Oxycontin, which was prescribed. So that trust in a doctor, that trust in your medical field uh, was taken advantage of. And as you pointed out later, finally, there's some lawsuits that are bringing these points out. Yeah, it was malice. There's yes. intentional exploitation. Exactly. And as I was trying to understand the complexity of this, I met with uh, county people, met with state officials, uh, met with, uh, you know, uh, several folks on the federal level, and we began to have policy hearings. Policy hearings, also known as public inquiries. Public hearings are typically organized as a way to gather public opinions and concerns on political issues before a legislature, agency, or organization makes a decision or takes action. A public hearing is defined as an open gathering of officials and citizens in which citizens are permitted to offer comments, but officials are not obliged to act on them, typically even to respond publicly. Also known as public inquiries, public hearings are typically organized as a way to gather public opinions and concerns on a political issue before a legislator and organization makes a decision or takes an action. Public hearings can be called on more or less open topics or else are held on pre-drafted legislation, agendas, or action items. And at the policy hearing, I was fortunate. I found out about some grandparents from Luzerne County who were grandparents raising grandchildren because their own son or daughter was either addicted, died from, or was in jail because of the addiction. Yeah. And now those children needed love and attention. And when those three grandparents testified, um, I'm getting a little choked up myself. Sorry. There wasn't a dry eye because people couldn't realize the pain and suffering they were going through, knowing that they may have lost their own daughter or son. And now they have these grandkids that they now want to make sure that they love, protect, and take care of them. But the way the law was written, it was only loco parentis, which meant that the parents had the authority. Grandparents had no authority. The term loco parentis, which means in place of a parent or instead of a parent, refers to situations in which someone other than a biological parent takes the role of a parent to a minor child without formally adopting the child. So that began this trek of getting some of my colleagues on board, reaching across the aisle to get some of my other colleagues on board to try to make them understand how important it was to at least change the law to allow for what was called temporary guardianship. Yeah. And that's what my bill, House Bill 1539 did. Mm -hmm. You would go before the judge, you'd make your case, you'd have your legal advisors. And if the case was made, the judge agreed, you could get temporary guardianship, which meant that you had the authority to take that child to school, to take that child to the doctor, to be able to take care of them. Just, be just basic caretaking of a grandkid could become that complex. Parents in jail can have a fatal overdose. That's correct. And they didn't have any rights to take their own grandchildren. That is correct. And uh, that started 1539. I then reached out to uh, the chairwoman, the Republican chairwoman of the Children's uh, Caucus, the Children's Committee. And uh, she and I talked for a long time. She was a wonderful lady. That is Chairwoman Catherine Watson. She then took some of the uh, the bills that we were working on and she created her 2133. Now, what did that bill do? 
it now created what was called Kinship Navigator. There's a lot of grandparents have no idea where to go. They have no idea what to do. They have no idea what help is out there, if there's any help. So we now have what's called Kinship Navigator. They can make a phone call uh, to this um, contact. It's a state contact. And then they will help guide those grandparents to the various agencies or associations that will help them in one way, shape, form, or another. Like a liaison to walk them through. Because this is like a trauma in the sense you work your entire life. You could, may probably, I would venture, I'm just spitballing. A majority of those 90,000 people could be on fixed income. Oh, absolutely. Of of planning out how to live the rest of your life on a fixed income. Now have a child, maybe two children are now in that household, adding to all the fixed costs. Wow. That that's a crisis. It is a crisis. It's a mental crisis along with a physical crisis, along with a financial crisis <laughs> and a human contract, you know, a crisis. So just, just to give you a little heads up. So the, I, you know, out of those two bills, that's what we got. And then I did house resolution 390, which asked for a commission to be started to analyze the whole system and then make recommendations. Yeah. So some of the recommendations now are that we maybe can take some foster care money, okay. help those grandparents, uh, create a commission that will continue to help guide them through this process. And uh, uh, also, you know, deal with the mental crisis that they suffer from, yeah. let alone the finances, you know, so uh, there's plenty of work that has to be done. But this was the start. So the start is uh, the kinship. And this is a f- the first point of contact to walk yourself through this unexpected thing, that, the, the storm that arise. But it's, it's you want your grandkids. Yes. Um, so there's a different bunch of different elements. You, you need someone to advocate for their legal rights and how to walk them through this, this guardianship. That was your first task to pass these laws. There's a financial component, of the stress it could create, and there's an emotional Kinship seems to what I'm, I'm looking at address the a legal liaison to start helping them mm-hmm. find this. That's correct. And emotional support. What, what does the emotional support look like? How does that? Well, they'll connect them with uh, various, wherever that person might be living. Mm-hmm. They'll try to connect them with whether, whether it's a County association or whether it's a private association uh, like we have in Luzerne County yeah. um, in order to help get them some guidance. Also children and youth, uh, various other, again, county and state organizations, yep. departments that can try to guide them, you know, through their, uh, their challenges. And it's amazing. You know, it's so easy to just despise government until it's missing. <laughs> <laughs> and the support and the real impact of county government, I, at least that I see in Lackawanna County and Luzerne and state, it's, People don't see the reach of who it's supporting and helping. It's, it's, it's us. It's our, all our neighbors. But that real help can become in the form of county and state. I yeah. see that. Yeah, listen, the bottom line. And, and treatment and, you do. Yeah. And uh, I, I hope people don't despise government <laughs> yeah, because, yeah. because <laughs> your listeners are the government. That's right. Your listeners and your vote determine who represents you. And you, as uh, an American citizen, have every right to appropriately approach your legislators, whether they're county, yeah. city, state, federal, and share your thoughts. And then it's up to you to garner more people that think like you to move something forward. That's what I had to do on the state level within the House of Representatives in order to get this passed. Then we, of course, had to work with our senators to try to get them passed. The governor had no problem. When did that start? How long ago was that? That was 2017, 18. Yeah. And what did the lobbying, like, were you surprised by the acceptance, immediate acceptance from people who weren't uh, at the, the, the learning curve yet of what this was? 
Again, that's why we have these policy hearings, yeah. because as a representative, we get hit by every aspect uh, of life, and there's no way we can be an authority on everything. Yeah. So when I first was elected, you might recall, healthcare was one of my main issues. Absolutely. I kept saying it is not affordable, and because it's not affordable, it's not accessible, so quality doesn't matter if you can't get it. Yeah. And that's how... I became involved in this because it is a, you know, a cost and it's about healthcare and so on. Uh, so uh, not quite sure where we're going here, but. Well, I, I wanted to maybe just unpack for someone who's never seen that process. Like, um, you know, it, it, things have been hyperbolic for the last couple of yes. years. Uh, federally, state, it's everywhere. But I think there's hope in sight. And it's not hope that our side, your side wins. It's hope that people um, you know, once you know each other, you, you're not a Democrat or a Republican. You, you, mm -hmm. you know, the guy, you're, you're a person. And a lot of that happens at, uh, on the house floor. You've been there 16 years. So, you know, Republican or Democrat didn't matter. Addiction affects everyone and grandparents mm -hmm. raising grandkids. I know what that looks like. Cause it's probably somewhere close to you. You've, you see, you, people are visibly seeing yes. this. Um, you didn't meet much resistance. This seemed like a plan everyone could uh, get involved in. How did that work? Yeah. Uh, first of all, I have to tell you that things have changed dramatically. What was bipartisan is no longer. It is truly a struggle to try to get some things passed. Yeah. But that's why I want to emphasize the people, your power, your voice, your, your threat of not voting for you, buddy, the next time you're around is what forces many of those legislators back to the table. Yeah. But it always starts with an idea, whether it comes from the public or it comes from a legislator. And what started this was that policy hearing wow. when those three major grandparents told their stories. That was the impetus that began to bring Democrats and Republicans together. Yeah. And again, my relationship with Catherine Watson, my Republican mm -hmm. counterpart, uh, that helped because then she then lobbied her side. I lobbied my side. And then we got enough people that said, yeah, we're going to, we're going to support that. Then we had to do the same thing with the Senate. You know, I had to go to my guys yeah. on my side. She had to go to her side. And, you know, we, again, like I said, we, we also talked to the governor's people, you know, thank God the governor was very supportive of that concept. And that was no problem. The hardest part, was to get it rolling, to yeah. try to make people understand what was the information? What was the outcome? Why is this good? Why is it benefiting, you know, the people of Pennsylvania? Yeah. And, and that's the work that's needed, you know, in order to get these things passed. Yeah. I've, I'm a sucker because I've always appreciated it. And I got to learn a lot uh, of watching the way you would legislate. Um, you went there now for a position, you immediately started legislating and it gave me a new perspective of what does a working state rep look like is you, you walked in your freshman year, you got a bill, but to see you pay attention to this and such a caveat, it's, it's not, I'm not saying it's savvy. You see pragmatically, I can help here. This will work. You can't always help us, you know, issues yeah. that could attract you, but I'm, you're seeing this actualized. It's up and running now. Um, and support emotional and legal. I just wanted to talk about it, A, for people who need this support, mm -hmm. or we could refer this support, and to bring a spotlight on it. The opioid crisis is a multifaceted crisis. Very complex. And it has casualties from grandparents to children. Um, hemorrhaging costs everywhere, from health care to county budgets, state and federal. Here's a bill that got to, uh, a law that got passed that just picked off it's momentum. I see it as momentum. Well, that helped spur the advocacy fund for grandparents raising grandchildren. And what's that? So those three grandparents uh, and I then developed a tremendous mutual respect rapport with each other. We truly loved each other, respected each other. And, you know, I said, okay, we got this thing passed but there's still a lot of grandparents that don't have the money we found out for the legal cost of going to court, hiring a lawyer to get that special custody or that adoption or that temporary guardianship. Yeah. So I said, 
let's see whether we can try to put together uh, an organization. We'll go to the Luzerne Foundation and ask them if they can help us organize this nonprofit and see whether we can raise money to be able to get this system in place. And so I donated money. A couple of the other members donated money. We had some friends donate some money. We had about four or $5,000. That's all we had at the time. Mm -hmm. We went to the Luzerne Foundation, told them what we were doing. And by the way, the Luzerne Foundation, Charles Barber was the exec, fantastic there. His organization, fantastic. And now it's David Pedry, who I know is going to do a great job. And they helped guide us. And they, they told us, we encourage you to apply for a special grant that we do every year. So they have, in fact, I'm sorry, I can't even think of how many they have. They started out with just like maybe 15, 20 organizations. Now they have 50, 60, 70, you know, what started out as a few million. Now they're up to like $50 million of the the value with all these uh, foundations, great, great um, purposes and causes. And they said, you know, apply for this. You have a chance to win $5,000. Yeah. We said, great. So we had to make a video and I had those three grandparents tell their story. Oh man. That was it. We did not win the $5,000. Jeez. We won the grand prize of $25,000. Oh man. And that's what gave us the foundation. Since then we've helped uh, pretty close to 10, 11 different grandparents with legal fees. With legal fees. Yeah. We, we pay about 2500 up to $3,000 to get guardianship. Yes. Yeah. So it, it was just an uplifting feeling. That's a life changing uh, amount of money on a fixed income. Yeah. And just possibly losing a child yourself, whatever that looks like. It's just tragedy. No, that, that's an important point you want to emphasize. So that grandparent. They're there because they lost their daughter or their son. And that's why they have their children. So it's a double, you know, catastrophe. Yeah. And the support groups, um, are you seeing them utilized in Luzerne County? Are people meeting? Oh, yeah. Now, by the way, we have uh, uh, Joan Gower and Frank uh, Mariano, Mariano, our uh, president, they hold a support group every month. We hold it at the Wilkesboro YMCA. Yep. Uh, we have the phone numbers that you're going to share with everyone. Absolutely. And anybody that's in that position that just wants to share some thoughts, share some ideas, get some ideas, get some help, uh, you just give Joan a call and you meet. It's private uh, or it's a group setting, however you want to do it. And we'll take it from there. I'm going to share that information, uh, all of it. I, I really wanted to talk about this because you've always been an open-minded guy and, and you've always been a music music. You've been on the music scene prior to being a state rep and a year for teachers. So you, you saw, you, you saw the sixties, you saw county culture, you saw eighties. Uh, then you become a legislator. How, how, much has changed in your view of addiction, just your personal uh, life. How, how did that change your narrative of what you thought addiction was? Well, the only addiction that I ever saw was uh, with alcohol. Mm-hmm. You know, some members of the family, um, you know, back then alcohol was part of, you know, just about Culture. every kind of weekend or whatever. And there was a bar on every corner. Yeah. Um, so and a funeral home. Yes. No, no, you're, you're, you're correct because of the minors and so on. Mm -hmm. Uh, but, uh, what I saw in the beginning was just beer. When we performed, we were doing high schools. We were doing Hanson's park, Sandy beach, Sansui, St. John's, all of that. Um, and as a result, we never really saw any kind of, um, opioids at all. No. Um, when it was in the seventies is when I started to see that. Now I never realized that, you know, with Vietnam and everything, that's where, you know, marijuana started to be a natural thing. I had a rule with my band and keep in mind that I was married. I had Mm -hmm. children. I was a teacher, a choral director, part of the union and so on. So my rule was whatever you do in your private life, that's up to you. Yeah. But when we were on the job together, when we were in the van together, you're working. 
That's it. It's That's clean. It. Yep. Yeah. And um, a lot of bands operate it that way. Even party bands that had the image of parties when they were working, they were working. Yeah. If you wanted to be successful, yeah. you had to know what the heck you were doing. And if you were into the other stuff, you didn't. Um, and then when you got into the seventies, um, it became more and more prevalent. And then we started to perform in clubs outside of the area. We started to do a college circuit. That's where I started to see more booze. I started to see more marijuana in the clubs is yeah. where all of a sudden you began to see the line of Coke. Um, oh, again, yeah. you know, that, yeah, that, that was... kind of, and it was weird to me. Oh, that shit, you know, the eighties. No, really. <laughs> Built like, a city, Miami. Yes. <laughs> Rebuilt Miami. Yes. And I couldn't believe it, uh, believe it was happening. Um, so I would not be like the best person cause I was never in that crowd. No. So I never saw it. But you get to, you see it and it was becoming almost pop culture and addiction looks, I don't know, even me. I, I, I was in 11 treatment centers and I still wow. thought I had a will between the age of 16 and now 40. I, I still thought I had the will to change the addiction. And it's, it's, it's a subtle thing. Well, well, how couldn't a person not do? How do they get better if they don't do that? It's a really subtle disorder. The idea of how you're responding to impulse or low self-esteem I just see the rise growing. It's hard not to associate it with culture um, of the need being met by the opioid. It's, it's not just a drug takes you over. You had a need that the drug was filling. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's tr- it's usually filling a void or a, a, a response to trauma. Um, I just see it in the 70s and 50s. People say, oh, it was always that way. No, I don't think so. Not at this scale. At, at 100,000 people did not die 10 years ago. I agree with you 100%. Yeah. I agree totally. And the thing that's horrifying now is that a kid would buy pills from some guy on the street. You know, when you looked at the alcohol, you knew that you could drink the alcohol, uh, but you're not going to die from it. No. Now you have no idea. As a matter of fact, uh, the fent- fentanyl strips, mm-hmm. which I totally support, and I want to try to get past, yeah, will great. identify whether the fentanyl is in it because the fentanyl right now is it's is prolific. Oh, it's everywhere. You know, and uh, and we're struggling. You know, now we have medical marijuana. Are we going to legalize marijuana? Mm-hmm. H- how do you control it? Um, you know, can people grow it at home? No. You shouldn't. Some people want to say nothing's wrong with that. Yeah. Well, you can't make your booze at home, even though, you know, the people will say those things. <laughs> Don't but, say that in Pittston. <laughs> <laughs> no, but the wine has, season are down there. Jeepers. <laughs> yeah. But th- there has to be some kind of control yeah. for the safety of all. Yeah. You know, and, and, um, uh, I, I could, we didn't say this before, but I have always felt that there's more good in this world than not. Yeah. There's more good in the United States. Now. Well, that's we how just, you carry yourself too. Uh, you don't have to tell people it's apparent. If someone gets to know you, you, you have hope you're fighting for a future oh, yeah. that is filled with uh, justice and honesty and, and, and fair treatment. And, you know, we only have one life to live. Yeah. Let's try to enjoy it. Let's, you know, have the friendship, let's have the families. And yes, every day, look, every day, you know, I, I tell everybody life is like the weather. One day it's glorious. The next day it's a hurricane. Yeah. Okay. But we still only have one life. Let's do the best we can. Let's do as much good as we can. And the other thing I would tell your audience, please, please, please search for the truth. Search for the facts and let that guide your decisions, not some guy on Facebook or some guy that you heard, you know, in this uh, podcast, like, like Joe, <laughs> crazy <laughs> Joe and Eddie. <laughs> no, but uh, I cannot emphasize that no. more. Please I think search for the truth. My friends that in, in light, light of the aftermath of the pandemic that we're, st- you know, still experiences some degree and all these, this upheaval, um, I found my place in the world where I could make the, I can make sense of my purpose and how to help people. Um, and you know, it looked a little bit of departing for me from, uh, politics. I was losing my kind of, um, abilities there to handle stress almost too. Mm-hmm. And when I 
the encouragement you gave me when I started a new position up at avenues. And, um, I just knew I was making the right move because this gave purpose to my life. Again, I, I really realized even when I didn't have anything wrong, I still didn't feel good. Uh-huh. And I know what that is. That's addiction. That, that started before I used. And when you heard me talk about it, like when we were up at Lake Ariel, um, on, on the ribbon cutting, I was, uh, I knew you got it. And I was like, you always got it with seeing, identifying people in pain. And yeah. how can I use my power to relieve yep. this? This is justly. Yep, exactly. That's why I said, I believe there's more good. I follow the truth and the facts. There are people that can come together and help everyone. Um, and th- that's one of the best things about this job. Anytime I can do something good, makes me feel good. Oh my God. You know, when I can help somebody or in this case, you know, we got this bill passed. Okay. That's, we made accomplishment, but now we still have more work to do. So let's keep going, you know, but uh, now listen, I'm so proud of you. And again, what you're doing is very important because I believe you're the guy that's going to emulate the truth. You're going to look for the truth. You're going to share that with your listeners. Your listeners will then have to make their choice. Sure. Sure. Um, I I definitely want to have another discussion sometime too uh, about treatment because um, some colleagues of yours, Senator John Kane had a committee two weeks ago. There's a lot of great progressive things our state's doing uh, with DDAP, understanding where real problems are in yeah. the treatment side and encouraging payment for a full year of people living in a safe place, not yes. these uh, just awful, uh, undignified deemed recovery houses. Yeah. They had a great committee to identify them, created a new regulation for recovery houses to be a, <clears throat> a designated recovery house, um, seeing the need Medicaid people need to, to, to live safely for a year. Yeah. And, you know, I, I was really heartwarming that I saw so many people making sense with what they were saying. I was like, wow. Well, yeah. let me, let me uh, share this with you. Sure. As I told you, just, I might be the example. I didn't understand it. And then I began to research, talk to people. And then we, we began to say, um, well, it's not really their fault. Uh, No, they're, they're not losers. It's because of what's transpired with oxycodone or it's because what transpired in their lives or it's their body makeup. And then all of a sudden came a what? Naloxone. Thank God we have we have a, a drug that will prevent their death. Yeah. Fantastic. And then it was, yeah, but we gave him the naloxone. He got better or they got better. They went out and they, they got buzzed up again yeah. and then they died. So what I'm trying to say now is now you're now buprenorphine yeah. and uh, several other different kinds of treatments. You didn't yeah. have treatments before. It was That's why I said education is key, because at first it was, what do you do? Well, you get the emergency out, you try to save their life, then you had naloxone, you saved their life. Now, the governor put together the Department of Health, Department of Human Services, uh, Department of Corrections, Department of Education, you're talking about bringing a whole bunch of people from different aspects Sorry. to begin to learn now. How do we understand it? How do we then treat it? And make sure the goal is get the treatment so they actually recover and stay yeah. recovered. And that is a big difference than what it was seven years ago. Yes, it is. Okay. It's, it's more articulate. It's more intelligent. It's based on long-term yes. results. It's also not discriminating to people that abstinence might not be the immediate goal. And they might need what I call life-saving drugs. Uh, um, A lot of my friends don't want to use Suboxone, but it could could have got them through a bridge period. Uh, A lot of people, that same argument, Nioxalant, you can't get dead people sober. There you go. (laughs) What kind of insanity are we talking about here? We're human beings. Uh, and they're sick. Exactly. So. I, I was trying to uh, think about, um, you know, the, the name of the group, because uh, they have several of these surnames. But the, the governor, by the way, also for this budget, put almost $100 million into like three, four different areas. Yeah. Again, trying to work on the treatment, yeah. recovery, and remain, you know, safe. Um, I, I will share that with you. Um, 
Yeah. I'll get the information for you. Yeah. I want to have a couple more, um, in March too. I was going to, our, uh, late spring, uh, talk to you again about some stuff that's coming up, um, for recovery houses in Pennsylvania. Um, I really got up to speed in the last year, understanding what, and I, I didn't realize how pampered and, or maybe now grateful I am to grow, grow, grow up in Lackawanna County in Pennsylvania, the way alcoholism was viewed in the nineties here. Um, I don't think maybe I would have had a different story or a tragedy if I wasn't around people that understood what they were talking about, even in the nineties and they did it with compassion, mm-hmm. non-judgment, non-power, uh, you just, you were getting help. It's yes. okay. Yes. A yes. lot of us understand what addiction is. You know what else? We have it. You know what else they're doing? They're taking people like yourself, Joe, who have recovered. You understand it from A to Z and beyond. And now they're utilizing you to help some of those patients in the recovery and that sustainability to stay straight. You're absolutely right. That's the CRS program. Yes. It states, uh, it's a certified recovery specialist. I'm taking the course this spring. It's funny. You said Outstanding. That. Over at the recovery bank, um, they're teaching it and that's in March. Um, but this is offered all over the state. You can find, um, you can even get grants to take the course, what the requirement is. And I put this in a show before, but I can't talk about it mm-hmm. enough. Okay. It's, um, it's, it's about nine weeks, uh, a course one day a week and about 66 hours of training, 12 hours of homework. Then you take a state certification. What that certification allows you to do is come from the perspective, you are an expert, you recovered. And, but here's a standard and ethics that we follow as recovery specialists. Here's the limit of our training. We're not psychiatrists. We're peer to peer. We're, we're going, we can help. And maybe make a connection in a hospital or at a probation office or at some other service where another person couldn't because we're ta- we could speak that language right, without I, judgment. I guarantee you, you will save many lives and you will lose some. Yeah. Yeah. And that's just the reality. But uh, no one can challenge uh, your knowledge of what you went through. And then also no one can challenge the goodness and the kindness that you're now emulating to that addicted person that you're trying to help them with, which is huge. You care when they realize that someone cares that gives them hope and strength. Yeah. Yeah. I guess not to get too uh, lofty, but the spiritual, like, you know, you knew me, I was secular kind of (laughs) atheist, but the spiritual (laughs) truth in that I'm finding over the last, Cause who are you talking to? You're talking to you there. That's me. Mm-hmm. It, like what, I want to be treated the way the, the same exact way I would want to treat someone in that position. I know what it feels to feel humiliated, mm-hmm. especially uh, related to my addiction. And it would keep me trapped in my house or not asking for help. Um, that goes away. If you'd let one person in, it was always someone that had addiction that I let in. Mm-hmm. And I was like, man, I've, I've really missed the mark here. He does know what I'm talking about. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's, you're making the point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, Eddie, I want to thank you. I'm going to put all of uh, the links to this uh, for the YMCA meeting. <clears throat> yep. And the fund and maybe a little information too about Luzerne Foundation with yeah. Dave Pedri, because that is a really interesting um entity that can help a lot of people that might be interested if they had ideas or want to support any Absolutely. of those organizations. And it's also a place you can make a pitch. You have a good idea about treatment and recovery. Um, this is where it would begin. Um, taking the courage to, to bring your idea to someone else. No, I appreciate that. And, you know, Lackawanna County could develop their own advocacy fund for grandparents raising grandchildren. You know, they'd have to get their people together, raise some money, and then do exactly what we're doing. We don't have enough money to go outside of Luzerne County. Well, so here's what I was at. thinking. Uh, we'll do it in old-fashioned Lackawanna County sense. We'll <laughs> sue your entity. <laughs> old, but I think that's it. Uh, we see that a lot with Scranton and Wilkesbury. Something works for you guys. It works for us. Yeah. And if it works for us, you guys, like we're sister cities. There's good people in Luzerne and Lackawanna County. When I first got elected and I heard about this controversy or this, you know, this uh, contest between, I said, listen, man, Scranton, you're North Philly. 
Wilkes-Barre, we're South Philly. Yeah, we're uh, yeah, yeah, we are. We're one mega city <laughs> yeah. there. So, well, Eddie, thanks for coming on, and I look forward to talking to you soon. Thank, thank you very you. much, and thank you for all your good work. Good luck. Pennsylvania Kin Connector helps kinship care families in numerous ways, including connecting caregivers to health, financial, and legal services, connecting caregivers to training and parenting support, identifying local physical or behavioral health services, identifying support groups, guiding caregivers on how to apply for federal, state, and local benefits such as CHIP and Social Security, providing access to compassionate kin connector who will listen and provide supportive guidance. You can find them on kinconnector.org, and that's K-I-N-C-O-N-N-E-C-T-O-R.org. Or feel free to call them at 1-866-KIN-2111. Again, that's 1-866-546-2111. And for those grandparents, uh, you're not alone. Come find the support you've been looking for. Supporting grandparents raising grandchildren. Called New American Heroes. It's a support group for grandparents raising grandchildren. The group that gathers to listen, educate, share frustrations and good news, and support one another while raising grandchildren. They meet every second Monday of each month from 6 p.m. to 7.30. That's at the Wilkesbury YMCA on 40 West Northampton Street, Wilkesbury, PA. For more information, please call Joan Gower at 570-401-9815. I'd like to thank you for listening to another episode of All Better. You can find us on allbetter.fm or listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and Alexa. Special thanks to our producer, John Edwards, and engineering company 570 Drone. Please like or subscribe to us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And if you're not on social media, you're awesome. Looking forward to seeing you again. And remember, just because you're sober doesn't mean you're right. Hi, this is Joe Van Wee, your host of All Better. I had a few announcements. If you're interested in subscriber content, which we're about to launch, this would be step workshops, cognitive behavioral therapy tools, and mindfulness practices that are approachable and can be very useful in reducing anxiety, rumination, and depression. Please send us a, a message on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. And if you like the episodes that you've been hearing very much, please stop by Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating and a small review. This helps us stay relevant in the field of content and helping people and their families with substance use disorder. Thank you.